Discerning Hearts is proud to present this audio version of Nunc Cepi, the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. This is a production of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary featuring Father Timothy Gallagher, Father John Wikes, and other members of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. We encourage you to seek out the video, which you can readily find on the podcast post located on Discerning Hearts or on the website for the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, omvusa.org. He lost his mother at an early age. He was plagued with ill health. He was arrested by the police of Napoleon Bonaparte. His efforts to found a religious congregation were met with many difficulties. And yet, this was a man of unfailing determination and undying trust in God, a man who truly lived the words, Nunc Chapi. Now I begin. relationship with the Lord Jesus was absolutely the heart of everything. What drew people to him then and what continues to draw people to him now is his continuing call to hope, to begin again, to never let discouragement have the final word. No matter how dark things seem, no matter what the trouble may be, no matter what kind of a spiritual corner we've backed ourselves into, that the door is always open. We can always begin again. The Italy of 1759 is not yet a unified nation, but a collection of separate kingdoms. Gently caressed by the Alps and placed precariously close to revolutionary France, the region of Piedmont in northern Italy is where Father Lanteri will spend most of his life. My name is Padre Yves Morin. My name is Yves Moran. I come from Quebec City in Canada. I have been living here in Pinarolo since 2009. I am here now at Pinarolo in Piedmont, which I first saw as a seminarian when we would go to view in another nearby valley. And now being here in Pinerolo, at the foot of the mountains, before the great Italian plains near Turin, to know the place where he, Lanteri, actually walked and traveled, is for me a beautiful, great opportunity to feel in some way the world that he saw and felt around him. The life journey of Venerable Bruno Lanteri begins here in the city of Cuneo, where he is born on May 12, 1759. 
His father Pietro is a doctor and from all accounts a professionally competent doctor and not only that but a very Christian doctor who was well known for his charity toward the poor people who could not pay the appropriate fees and his willingness to help any. Camminare nelle vie di, di Cuneo è, è bello perché ci fa in qualche modo... To walk in the streets of Cuneo is nice because it helps us intuit in some way what it would have been like for Father Lanteri growing up. Because he lived here until the age when he moved away to the university, the age of a young adult, one can almost feel his presence, almost intuit what his life as a child was like. Therefore it is beautiful. It's nice to be here, where the little Bruno would have played and passed his first years. We should think of a large city in an agricultural area, and therefore people come from the countryside to the big city to sell and to buy products. So the city is an important reference point. It is a rural society where only the people who have a little more can become educated and make progress. the seventh of ten children, young Bruno's childhood is not without tragedy. Five of his younger brothers and sisters die at a young age. Then there is an even greater tragedy. Bruno's mother, Margarita, dies when Bruno is only four. Dr. Pietro Lanteri, grieving the loss of his wife but ever concerned for his children, brings little Bruno before an image of the Blessed Mother. Pointing to the image, the doctor tells his son, She is your mother now. And years later, in fact in, in old age, he said a number of times this phrase, which was repeated and remains in the lore of those who knew him, I hardly ever knew any other mother than the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I have never received anything but caresses from so good a mother. Now let's note the first half of that phrase before we move too quickly to the second. I hardly knew any other mother than the Blessed Virgin Mary. Too soon in his life, the feminine maternal presence of a mother was removed. But as so often would be the case throughout his life, human tragedy becomes the open door or the stepping stone into a new spiritual richness. From that time on, he would take Mary deeply into his heart, into his life, she would fill for him the need for the feminine warmth and love that his young heart lost too soon, and she would become decisive in his life. Mother. 
Badia Coral Valdesone preserves and performs the songs of Old Piedmont. Handed down orally generation to generation, these songs give us a glimpse into the music of Lanteri's time. Here, in Cuneo's Cathedral, Bruno receives the Sacrament of Confirmation in 1772. When the young Bruno is 17 years old, he, with his father's permission, attempts to join the Carthusians. Now that tells us a lot about the preceding years, that a 17-year-old young man would want to consecrate his life to God, and not only to consecrate his life to God, but in the most rigorous form of religious life that exists, the austere penitential life of the Carthusians, tells us a great deal about what has preceded. To be here in the valley of Cusapesio that faces the monastery of the Certosa makes us see how much Father Lanteri felt this desire for an intense spiritual life so to be near the Lord, all for the Lord. E lui decide questo passo, vuole veramente dedicarsi pienamente alla preghiera, anche allo studio, alle buone letture. He wants to truly and fully dedicate himself to prayer and study and good reading in a Marian setting. La certosa si dice... And therefore, he turns to the Carthusians. The Carthusians say they have never needed reform because they have never been deformed. And in the monastery there is a very high entrance standard. The prior receives Lanteri, studies him, and does not have doubts about his good capacities. However, he sees Bruno's delicate physical health. Speaking with Lanteri in the prior's own room, the prior points to the view of the cemetery outside the window, as if to say, if you stay here, you won't last long here. Confronted by the limitations of his poor physical health, Bruno is forced to abandon his plans to become a Carthusian. His monastic experience lasts a total of eight days. Greatly disappointed, young Bruno returns home. But soon he will say once again, Nunc Cepi, now I begin. 
the Venerable Bruno takes about a year to discern the next step and understands that God is calling him to diocesan priesthood. And for that reason, the following year, when he's 18, journeys to the city of Turin, where he would spend almost the rest of his entire life, almost 50 years, and begins his studies toward priesthood at the University of Turin. Torino, otherwise known as Turin, a bustling city, the capital of the Kingdom of Piedmont, the center of political activity, of cultural activity, of Catholic activity. When the young Lanteri journeys to Turin, he's heading to the nerve center, to the heart of the culture and life of his nation. Therefore, Father Lanteri, without doubt in this city, felt the need of preparation, but also the need to come down into the concrete of the life of the persons he met. Jansenism. The rigoristic moral theology of this man, Cornelius Jansenus, becomes a harsh pastoral practice. Jansenism places emphasis on the fallen nature of humanity. The standards are very strict. Absolution is often denied those who go to confession, and reception of communion is greatly discouraged or even eliminated altogether. Now, he's a young man. He's just beginning his studies. He's at that very impressionable age in which a person's intellectual identity is being shaped and begins to read authors who are tinged with Jansenism without realizing where all of this is heading. Young Lanteri, now being swayed by Jansenist writings, meets Father Nicholas Joseph Abrecht de Diesbach, a Jesuit who lived in Turin during the suppression of the Society of Jesus in 1773. Lanteri's outlook changes under the influence of Father Diesbach, who now guides his young pupil in the right direction. And the man who divine providence put before him is Diesbach, who presents himself as a man with much knowledge, who knows very well different languages, who has a well-formed theology, and who comes from the company of Jesus, who Lanteri esteems for what they had done in Cuneo. Therefore, in Diesbach, he finds a strong reference point, a man of experience, a man of vast culture, of great charity, and a deep spirituality. Father Diesbach and the young Lanteri have an active and fruitful ministry. They minister to the poor, giving them food, clothing, and instruction in the faith. And together they go to public places in the city to engage people in conversation and bring them back to the Lord. Now, there's even a formal setting to this because it's in these years that Father Diesbach founds the Christian friendship group, the Amicizia Cristiana, in its Italian title which has a very simple and powerful insight at its root. If books are being used to pull people away from the faith, there are also great numbers of wonderful books, the reading of which will strengthen, draw people back to their faith, deepen their faith, cause them to grow in a life of holiness. In the late 18th century, books are as important as the internet is today. Books are where ideas are communicated, shared, and debated. Books can spread error, books can spread truth. Books can draw people away from the faith or bring them closer. 
the Amicitia Christiana gathers and nurtures a group of fervent Catholics to bring tens of thousands of books to countless people throughout Europe. Father Diesbach also founds a second group, and this is the Priestly Friendship, or the Amicitia Sacerdotale. And this is a group of young men who are about to be ordained, or young priests especially. And in this Amicitia Sacerdotale, this Priestly Friendship, Father Diesbach trains them in the art of giving the spiritual exercises, in the art of hearing confessions, and also in the art of spreading good books, getting the right book into the hands of the right person. The young Lanteri joins both groups, and years later becomes the leader of both after the death of Father Diesbach. Through the contact with Father Diesbach, he also falls in love with the Ignatian spiritual exercises. Father Diesbach is a master of these, and in his own right, as his disciple, the um, future Father Lanteri will become a master of these and one who will train many others in the art of giving the spiritual exercises. So the, the influence of Father Diesbach on the young Lanteri is um, incalculable. It's here through that personal contact and in these organizations that he finds his fundamental identity which he will then practice and transmit to others in his own right. Ever mindful of his reliance on his heavenly mother, young Lanteri makes a loving and heartfelt act of consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary in August of 1781. He is ordained to the diaconate a few months later. After a brief period in Vienna with Father Diesbach, Bruno Lanteri returns to Torino to complete his studies. He now puts together a spiritual program in the form of 24 manuscript pages, a program he will follow for the rest of his life. Mass will be at the heart of every day. He will go to regular confession. He will be faithful to the divine office. He will make daily visits to the Blessed Sacrament. He will do spiritual reading on a daily basis. And so he writes very, very strongly at one point and repeats this twice, God alone, God alone, that that the whole center and purpose of his life, I am created by God, called to eternal life with God, and the single deep purpose for which I am here in this life is to live close to God, is what we would say to live the life of holiness, to live and to love and to serve out of the life of holiness. Bruno Lanteri is ordained to the priesthood in 1782. He is now just 23 years old. Terry has a long and fruitful priesthood. He continues his apostolate of good books, his work with the poor, with prisoners, and with university students, people of all walks of life. 
Un altro servizio. Another service is the service at the hospitals. He would go and seek out the poor. The hospital in that era was not like today. They were closed to the poor. And so Lanteri goes there to evangelize. Another apostolate is the sick. He is free, and he realized that priests do not visit the sick in their homes. He instead, educated by Diesbach, goes to the homes of the sick, and this way he makes many friends. The Venerable Anteri, out of his own experience in making the spiritual exercises himself, but also out of an extensive experience of giving these, this retreat to, to many others, comes to the conviction that there is no other instrument in the Church which has equal power to awaken in those who have access to it dispositions of sanctity. That is, that a person who makes the Ignatian spiritual exercises well will come out of them with a desire to be a saint. And this is what leads the Venerable Anteri to promote the spiritual exercises as much as he can personally and to dedicate a great part of his life to training others who would give these spiritual exercises. And the blessings that came from this only God will know. But so many lives were touched and transformed in this way. As the years pass, he also helps found the Convito Ecclesiastico, a residence of ongoing spiritual formation for newly ordained priests. Yet another important part of Lanteri's work is the sacrament of confession. He begins to hear hours and hours of confessions. He also promotes the moral theology of St. Alphonsus of Liguori in a way that would shape the confessional practice of great numbers of priests over the decades of his priestly life and would do a great deal to promote that more merciful approach to God that won back so many people discouraged by the rigor of Jansenism. Lanteri will say over and over again in his letters that the real enemy in the spiritual life is discouragement and to never give in to that. And this is where the theme of beginning again comes in. To one woman, he says to her, there's something heroic about this beginning again. He says, begin again, not only every day, but every hour of every day. And in his own writing says, if I should fall even a thousand times a day, a thousand times a day, I will, with peace in my heart, turn to God, ask his forgiveness, and begin again. Even as Lanteri's fruitful ministry continues, darkness looms on the horizon. In 1796, Napoleon invades Piedmont. A newly signed treaty ends the kingdom's independence. Lanteri's homeland is now under the control of a fierce tyrant. Very quickly after the French take over the nation of Piedmont, the religious orders are suppressed. They are simply sent into the streets to survive as best they can. Seminaries are closed, seminarians are forced to enter Napoleon's armies, and a very heavy control is placed over the entirety of the teaching and life of the church. 
the relationship between Napoleon and Pope Pius VII rapidly deteriorates. Napoleon sends his armies into the Papal States, takes over the city of Rome, and trains his cannons on the Papal residents. He decrees the suppression of the Papal States and their incorporation into his empire. Pius VII signs a decree excommunicating all those who have taken part in this action. Furious, Napoleon calls the Pope a raving lunatic who must be confined. And during the night in July of this year, three parties of French troops attack the Papal Palace and with axes they break down the doors and the windows, storm the palace and enter the Papal apartments and take him prisoner. After a long journey, the prisoner Pope is taken to the Episcopal residence at Savona, supposedly as a guest of Napoleon, but is under complete surveillance. These rooms are preserved exactly as they were 200 years ago. To be in the apartments where Pius VII was a prisoner makes one feel how much basically the Pope was humiliated. In this environment, one feels how oppressive it was to be closed up. Also, if the surroundings were carefully in order, and in some way the appearances of respect for his dignity were in place, nevertheless, he was a prisoner who could not have the books he wanted. He could not receive letters. He could not send letters or writings, and therefore he really was in prison. For example, on the bedroom wall there was even a hole where one could observe that the Pope was sleeping. He could not assist at Holy Mass. He had to participate from the balcony above and take part without being with the people singing or praying. And therefore, it becomes necessary to set up a support system for Pope Pius VII, a support system of economic help, and also documents, so that the Pope could say, I am not the one to say this. This council in this year has said it already. It is not that I am in personal disagreement, rather it is the tradition of the church, and the proof of this is in this or that church document. So Pio Bruno Lanteri enters into this network of support for the Pope, giving him economic help and documents. This obviously creates for him great enemies, because it is already declared that whoever is found in possession of these papal documents risks the guillotine. But Lanteri, with courage, looks not at his own personal gain, but that of the Church, that of the greater good of the Church. But how does the Pope receive physical documents while being constantly watched? 
Father Lanteri gathers the necessary documents, carefully hiding them in his apartments until giving them to a member of the Amitizia, who has received an audience by the Pope. While bowing to kiss the Pope's ring, the man slips the papers into the folds of the Pope's garments. All of this, of course, makes Napoleon furious, and the French police do everything they can to catch those who are involved in this kind of support of the Holy Father. And in fact, one of them is arrested, and on, amongst his papers is found a list of names. One of those names is Venerable Lanteri's. When police search Lanteri's apartment, they find nothing. The papers that would have compromised the priest are hidden in his kneeler. As Lanteri is kneeling during the search, the police never bother to look there. Eventually, Lanteri is arrested and interrogated, his papers thoroughly searched. He cannot celebrate Mass in public and cannot hear confessions. Finally, Bruno Lanteri, without a formal hearing and without a trial, is sent into exile. Due to his delicate health, his exile is commuted to his country home of La Granja. Here, at La Granja, Lanteri is confined. No official term limits are set. Will Lanteri stay here for weeks, months, years, for the rest of his life? Lanteri does not know, but he begins to appreciate this opportunity to embrace a life of contemplation. It was a time of mixed sorrow and blessing. Sorrow because of the ache in his heart as he is separated from all of the priestly activities and the persons which had filled his life. But a time increasingly also a blessing, a point will come when he will call this my cherished solitude, because something that he had longed for in his life and had never been possible to him takes place during these years. We had said earlier that when he was 17 he had sought contemplative monastic life. Bruno Lanteri spends many hours in prayer. He is constantly in communion with the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. He spends a great deal of time reading and deeply assimilating works of various saints, most especially the writings of St. Bonaventure. It is a time when his spiritual life reaches a whole new depth. One of the priests, younger priest, one of his disciples, who knew him and visited him during those years, would later testify after Venerable Lanteri's death that he was convinced by the way Father Lanteri could speak about the various degrees of contemplative prayer, that he was experienced himself, that he grew in those years into the deepest levels of infused, passive, mystical, contemplative prayer. In 1812, Napoleon marches into Russia. The invasion is a failure as Napoleon's troops are famously defeated by the Russian winter. Two years later, in 1814, a coalition of Allied forces invades France. Paris is captured, and Napoleon is forced to abdicate. Pope Pius VII returns to Rome. 
Bruno Lanteri's exile of three years is concluded, and he returns to Turin. It is time for him to say, Nunc Chapi, and to begin again. The church in Piedmont is in a shambles after the Napoleonic era, but Father Lanteri resumes his active ministry. This includes spiritual direction for the elite of society, including this woman, the Marchesa of Barolo. Her mother was spiritually directed by Venerable Lanteri, and he would come from time to time to visit her for that purpose. Now, the young Julia was charming, she was attractive, she was wealthy. She did her best in these early months of contact with the Venerable Lanteri to avoid contact with him out of fear that she would be drawn into a life something like her, her mother-in-law was living. And her fear, if we can call it that, was not entirely unfounded. In fact, Venerable Anteri never pressured her, never pushed in any way, but was simply a presence that she could not avoid in her life. And eventually, the gentleness and goodness that she saw in him won her over, and she began to ask spiritual assistance. The Marchesa becomes famous for her pastoral care of women prisoners and works diligently to improve the horrible conditions in which they live. She creates what becomes a model prison for women all over Europe. Then she creates other institutions to help poor and destitute women of the city. She builds orphanages. She builds churches. Her charity knows no bounds. Finally, a point comes when it is said of her that there was no poor person in the city who did not come to know her. This is just one instance. Her cause of canonization, obviously, is underway now. This is just one of the many instances of the hidden work of spiritual direction of Venerable Anteri, which so impacted and blessed the individuals themselves whom he guided, but through them blessed the lives of countless other people. In the wake of Napoleon's fall, the church in Piedmont resumes the direction of its own life. In the city of Carignano, three diocesan priests, Father Giovanni Rinaldi, Father Antonio Biancotti, and Father Augustino Golzio are creating a new apostolic initiative. The group needs guidance from a master of the spiritual life. Father Rinaldi, representing this new group, approaches Father Lanteri, asking his advice. And Lanteri said that he has already begun with some priests to accept invitations to give the spiritual exercises in public, what we would today call popular missions. However, they would apply the dynamic of the exercises to people who had need of being evangelized. In other words, they wanted to teach people the whole life of Jesus, not only sin, hell, and judgment. They wanted to preach the private life, the public life, the passion, the resurrection, and that Jesus is present with us. And Lanteri said, with the exercises, we are already reaping fruit, so let us unite forces and dedicate ourselves to this together. Under the guidance of Father Lanteri, the new group dedicates itself to the kinds of works Lanteri had been promoting among priests for all of his life, giving the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, 
combating current errors, and disseminating good books. The group of three is won over by this suggestion of Father Lanteri, and he assumes at a distance, because he doesn't go to, to Carignano to live, he visits occasionally, but from a distance assumes the leadership of this group. And this is the beginning of what will become the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. In 1816, two years after the initial project, they are given diocesan approval as a diocesan community within the Archdiocese of Turin. Thus begins the diocesan-wide congregation known as the Oblates of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The word oblate means offering. They offer themselves to God through Mary. The priests of this new group become well-known for their tireless and active ministry. They are popular confessors. During a parish mission, confessions could begin at 4 o'clock in the morning and continue for over 20 hours, past midnight. The Oblates of the Virgin Mary chose the moral teaching of St. Alphonsus, a gentle moral teaching. Today, many phrases of Pope Francis are the phrases that Father Lanteri already said about mercy. But in his era, it was revolutionary to talk like this, because in those times, a sinner was not immediately absolved. As the Oblates gave the spiritual exercises, the popular missions, as they implemented this aspect of mercy, the faithful ran to them. This stirred up the jealousy of other priests who said that the Oblates were teaching lax morality, which was not good, and so they complained continually to the bishop. Just one year after the founding of the Oblates, a certain Archbishop Cavarotti becomes the new Archbishop of Turin. And his contact with the Oblates becomes somewhat discouraging for the Oblates. He is only willing to approve them if they will change dramatically, really, the nature of their group. And instead of dedicating themselves to the works Father Lanteri has given them, become priests who are available to the Archdiocese for any needs that the Archbishop may have. Understandably, they resist this, seeing in this something different from the call that they feel from God and decide that in the face of that difference or, or, or with the Archbishop, that it may be wiser simply to dissolve the group and wait for other times and perhaps better times for the future of the group. The Oblates of the Blessed Virgin Mary cease to exist. The former Oblates go their separate ways. Now over 60 years old and in rapidly failing health, a weary Bruno Lanteri decides to live the remainder of his life as a Jesuit priest. After some dealings back and forth on how to begin this, everything is arranged and Venerable Lanteri goes to the Jesuit novitiate in Chieri, which is just a short distance outside of Turin, to make an eight-day Ignatian retreat which will signalize the beginning of his entrance into the Jesuits. Goes there fully understanding that this is the first step in a life that will become a Jesuit life. However, in the course of those eight days of retreat, something changes. It came into his mind, says one Jesuit letter, that God wanted him to found a congregation of oblates 
that would dedicate themselves, as we Jesuits do, to giving the Ignatian parish missions and retreats. Everyone is a little surprised by this. He decides to go back to his home, since life as a Jesuit was not the way for him, and therefore takes the road that was opening up through friends, especially through the Demestra family and the Bishop of Pinerolo, who wanted to give a backing for the foundation of the new congregation, and felt that this was a secure voice to follow. The Congregation of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary is reborn, this time as a congregation of pontifical rite. On April 7, 1826, Father Lanteri and his secretary, Father Logero, journey to Rome. On September 1st, Pope Leo XII officially approves the congregation with the papal pronouncement, Etsy Dei Filius. Finally, in 1827, Lanteri leaves Turin and transfers his residence to St. Clair's in Pinerolo. Though the Oblates of the Virgin Mary were required to leave this place many years later, the Church of St. Clair's stands to this day old, showing its years, yet still a stately reminder of humble beginnings. Entrare nella chiesa di Santa Chiara è come avere uno squarcio, vedere uno squarcio di... To enter the church of St. Clair is like having a revelation a tearing aside the veil of mystery of the beauty that was the beginning or the second beginning of our congregation in the presence of Father Lanteri with all the enthusiasm that the first oblates felt to take up the apostolate with their teacher. Even if Father Lanteri was very tired, nearing the end of his life, but the beauty of this church speaks to us of the beauty of this really charismatic moment of the foundation. Father Lanteri, so soon after being elected rector major and beginning to live in community with his fellow oblates, is worn out from his many labors and is getting weaker. He is approaching the end of his life. Because of his physical condition, Venerable Lanteri rarely traveled in those last three years. Occasionally, 
before his illness worsened and toward the end, he would travel to the city of Turin, but otherwise remained in residence in St. Clair's and as the superior of the community directed its activity. Si racconta dai testimoni che ha toccato tutti l'ultima volta che ha partecipato alla settimana It is related by witnesses how it touched everyone the last time he participated at Holy Week. Con un fratello e pregare He was in the garden. He liked to walk in the garden, and he heard that they called for adoration of the cross for Good Friday. So he had the brother bring him down. He took off his shoes and in bare feet went and embraced the cross. When he returned back up in the garden, he was full of joy for that little act accomplished. And in the last period of his life, His continual prayer was, Jesus, I thirst for you. Jesus, I thirst for you. And oh, good Jesus. He lived with this hope, feeling also the motherly presence of Mary. He would always say, I did not have others except her as mother. Also in the painting that was made a little before he died, that marvelous painting that hangs in the sacristy at Pinarolo, where the Madonna is the one who dictates the spiritual exercises to St. Ignatius, and Lanteri is there, shown with a gesture of invitation to enter into this scene of revelation. Ignatius laid down his pilgrim walking stick and was writing, and Mary was speaking. This was Lanteri's conviction. The exercises are a gift of Most Holy Mary to Ignatius and through the Oblates. It is another way in which they will become a gift. Therefore, he lived the last period of his life in a strong Marian way, stirring up the members, encouraging them, receiving new vocations, the new professions, and to all he gave this strong invitation. Witnesses verify that Lanteri had visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary. His last Mass is on the Feast of St. Joseph, March 19th, 1830. After that, one of the other priests would celebrate the Mass and would bring Lanteri communion. He had a chapel made next to his room and a window placed in the wall between his bedroom in those months of his illness and the Blessed Sacrament so that as he lay on his sickbed he could see the Blessed Sacrament. And again, like those three years of exile, at the Granja, again, was living something of a contemplative life. And we here, too, we have some very beautiful witnesses of those who spoke with him uh, in these last years of his life in that context and remarked on the, the great gentleness that they found in him and also the deep faith. I'm thinking of the letter of one of these, a married man who writes to his wife and just tells her, today I'm very deeply moved. I was with Father Lanteri when he had one of his physical attacks. It became very hard for him to even breathe. And he said, at such times, tears fall from his eyes, and he pronounces the word paradise with so much faith. He tells his wife that it moves everything within me.
On the morning of August 5th, 1830, Venerable Bruno Lanteri blessed his fellow oblates gathered at his bedside. He encouraged them to love one another and to remain united in heart. Moments later, he died. He was 71 years old. Father Lanteri journeyed to God, and the congregation he founded flourished. Oblates of the Virgin Mary embraced the fullness of their charism, directing the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, supporting clergy formation, propagating the truth through the mass media, proclaiming the gospel in the foreign missions, and supporting lay formation. Today, the Oblates of the Virgin Mary live and minister in Italy, France, Austria, Argentina, Brazil, Canada, the United States, the Philippines, and Nigeria. Lanteri's tomb is still in the same city of Pinerola where he died, in a different church where the Oblates now reside, the Church of the Sacred Heart. Every year, on the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart, the bishop and priests of the diocese gather together here to celebrate the Mass and pray at the tomb of the man who lived by the words, Nunc Chapi. Now I begin. Il Rettor Maggiore mi ha chiesto di venire a Pinerolo e questo è stato per me come la realizzazione della mia preghiera perché in fondo la mia lettera era rimasta come una preghiera. The Rector Major asked me to come to Pinerolo and this was like a prayer answered because the letter I wrote remained like a prayer that the Lord knew. I was very happy to come here and am still Thank the Lord for this possibility to live near the tomb of Father Lanteri in the surroundings that he worked in, where the Oblates have been well loved and were wanted here by Bishop Ray, and how they are still loved by the Bishop of Pinerolo now. And I believe I can say that the bishops of Pinerolo over the years have been the principal benefactors of our congregation. Spero che questa casa. I hope that this house expresses this, its vocation to welcome oblates, and bring them in some way in contact with our founder. Per cui mi condivido in pieno il suo spirito missionario, suo spirito missionario, con cui lui ci vuole oggi uomini veramente in prima linea. I share in full his missionary spirit. He wants men today to have that spirit in the front lines of problems. However, that soundness, security, hope for the spiritual exercises, this requires us above all to journey on a continual walk of conversion. I too have need to be starting all over again. Let us say, to care for my conversion, my improvement, and never say, oh well, it is my character, it's my temperament. I like very much this priority of one's personal spiritual life, and then to think immediately of others. At this point, I am utterly convinced of the heroic sanctity of his life, which the Church declared in the decree declaring him venerable, and, and hold the, the deep uh, desire to see someday his beatification and canonization I find that his message becomes increasingly contemporary as events in the world 
cultural and political events, the life of the church unfold, his message becomes increasingly contemporary. I'm always struck by the response of people to his message as we share it today. And above all, I would say, the constant invitation with warmth and hope and good cheer to begin again, and to never let discouragement have the final word, but to always, with hope and with freshness and confidence in God's love, to continue to start anew, start afresh on the journey toward the Lord. Ricadrò mille volte, mille mi rialzerò, per ogni sbaglio lascerò, che tu sani le colpe e con pace nel cuore dirò, comincio. Yeah.